Dearest Father, uh, it is a privilege to hear from your word, to know that you care enough about us to teach us. We pray now that as we spend time looking at this passage in Hebrews 10, that your Holy Spirit would move in us and open our eyes and our hearts to hear the message that you want us to hear and then motivate us to change, to be more like you, more like your son. Father, I pray tonight that your words would be my words, that I would speak faithfully, and we pray all this in your great mercy. Amen. Well, uh, I remember the day when my single life well and truly changed. Uh, I'd proposed in the traditional way to my wife, Emma. I'd proposed over the phone. And um, now, I can recommend it. If you guys are thinking about getting married, I can highly recommend it. But to be fair, I was in Canada at the time and she was back here in Australia. I phoned home, I proposed. And I remember the anticipation with which I flew home to claim my bride and then how great it was to be married, and then we went off for our honeymoon in Hawaii, and how really nice it was just to spend a week together, alone, unchaperoned. It was beautiful. It was fantastic. And then we arrived in Vancouver and moved into our apartment, which was really a basement, but anyway, it felt like an apartment. And we were married, and being married was just great. It was fantastic. And then as we walked into the bedroom... Em looked at the the wardrobe or the cupboard or where you hang all your clothes up and she said she wanted half of it, at least. And I just remember just being absolutely gobsmacked by this. I mean, I knew I was married, I knew things had changed, but she wanted half my cupboard. What was the deal with that? And I just hadn't realised the implications of what it means to live with someone else and how things change. And lots of things changed for me. I got fresh food for a start, which was nice. Uh, But some things really were a total change to my previously individual and solo lifestyle. Later on in the year, um, we uh, were fortunate enough to go off on a six-month odyssey drive around North America. It's something I always wanted to do, just get in a car and drive the four corners of North America. Em had never wanted to do this. She had no desire, but luckily she agreed to go with me. That was kind of nice of her. But I'd done all the planning because I knew exactly what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, where I wanted to be, when... And uh, she didn't object to any of the itinerary, except for one thing, except for one thing. She did insist that we go to Prince Edward Island and this place called Green Gables. Now, now I grew up, I grew up in a boy family, right? And I have no idea what this Green Gables thing was. Uh, but my wife, she was very persuasive, and so we diverted and we spent a lovely couple of days on Prince Edward Island learning about Anne and Gilbert and a whole bunch of other stuff. Now... I think we all know, whether you're married or not, you know that getting married is one of those things that really changes your life. It means change. And like all big decisions, sharing your life with someone else has implications. Life cannot go on as it's previously done. Things have changed and you have to live differently. And as we turn to Hebrews today, the author of Hebrews is keen to point out to us here tonight that being a Christian has implications as well. You decide to follow Jesus it means big changes. You have to live differently. So let's turn to the passage and see what the author has to tell us. And you'll see as you look at verse 19 that our passage starts with the word therefore. And I don't know if you've picked it up as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, but it's a very common mechanism that the author uses. In fact, 14 times he's going to discuss uh, things within Hebrews and then wind it up with a therefore because the author is always keen to take doctrinal truths or those things that Christians believe, and work out the implications of that truth. Uh, he, just does, he doesn't want to just leave it as abstract thought, as theory, as theology. He wants us to take a Christian truth and see the implications of that truth and see how that means 
we have to change our lives and he wants us to live that change. Now, I was always taught as I was growing up that if you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? You have to understand the reason, what it's pointing back to. And to work that out, we need to go back to the passage we looked at last week. And if you remember back to last week, you'll recall that the passage was winding up a big section, essentially from chapter 5, which talked all about Jesus as a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And in the first 18 verses of chapter 10, we are reminded that while in the Old Testament, uh, a priest was always required to go again and again and again to offer sacrifices to pay for people's wrongdoing or or for their sin, that Jesus' death on the cross was very different, very, very different. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. It was a final sacrifice. In fact, it was such a sacrifice that it means that no other sacrifices are ever required again. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 10. Day after day, Hebrews says, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds... Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Because of what Jesus has done, because his sacrifice was sufficient to pay eternally for every single one of our sins, sacrifice is no longer required. Forgiveness is already ours. Because of what Jesus has done, we're no longer flawed. The relationship that was broken between us and God by our sin, by the things we do wrong, has been restored again. It's all done. It's all done. And this is what the therefore is there for in verse 19. Given what Jesus has done, the author now wants us to turn our eyes to what that means for our lives and how we live. Because it's not enough to simply say, Jesus' death on the cross wash me from my sins, and live our lives just the same. Not enough. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' victory over death, changes things. And it means that we have to live differently. We have to think differently. It must make a difference in our lives. So what difference does it make? Well, in our passage today, the author is going to point out three big differences that it makes for us. Firstly, in our relationship with God. Secondly, in our own lives. And thirdly, in the way we relate to others. And let's look at each of those in turn. We'll start off with uh, our relationship with God. Because we're forgiven, the author urges us in verse 22 to, as you'll see there, draw near to God. Draw near to God. How can we do this? How can we approach the unapproachable, great, glorious, holy, mighty, awesome God? How do we do that? Well, it's it's essentially because of everything we've discussed in the first nine chapters of Hebrews, but the author focuses on two particular reasons in verses 19 to 21. First, we can draw near because we can have confidence to enter the most holy place, that is, God's place, that is, heaven. And why do we have that confidence? 
Well, it's because what Jesus has done. You see, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God was separated from his people. In the temple, which is where God would come to, in the middle of the temple there was this massive curtain, a physical curtain, and behind that curtain was the most holy place, which is exactly what was described. It was the most holy place of all. And only one person could ever go into that place, the great high priest of Israel, and he could only go once a year. One person, once a year. No one else, no other time. However, if you think back to Hebrews 8 and 9, what we saw there was the author telling us that Jesus' sacrifice, when he spilled his blood as a sacrifice, when he gave his body, that's what gave him eternal, permanent entry into the most holy place. There are no limits anymore for Jesus. He's there forever. He's always there. So that's the first point. The second one, as we see in verse 21... Second point that he makes is that Jesus' entry into the most high place, most holy place, is not just for himself. Because Jesus is our great high priest, he stands there for us as well. He gives us access into the most holy place. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. It's on the basis of these two things that we can draw near to God. We can approach God. We can pray to him. We can talk to him. We can call him Father. Now, one of the most amazing things for the Apostle Paul, when he converted from being a Jew to becoming a Christian, one of the most amazing things for him that he describes in Galatians was the fact that he could now call God Abba, which is Aramaic for Daddy. He could call God Daddy. For a Jew, this is almost blasphemy. You didn't call God Daddy. You see, this is the God of Mount Sinai, of pillars of fire, of most holy places, of instant wrath. You couldn't call him Daddy. But what Paul realised is that what Jesus did allowed him great new access to God. And he could call him those intimate terms call him father in a really personal way now for many people today saying that we can confidently go before God uh, smacks of presumption and perhaps even arrogance and no we can't take that privilege for granted don't think you can just stroll on in and nor should we think that the confidence is based on what we've done because it's not we bring nothing to the table but the fact is that the Bible tells us here in Hebrews it tells us to be confident and to approach God. And this change in the relationship with God that we have is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' perfect sacrifice makes this difference. But that's not all. It's not just the fact that we can draw near to God. What's also amazing is how we draw near to God. We do it with a pure heart, our bodies cleansed of sin, with full assurance that everything has, done, has been done for us, that the slate is wiped clean. Look with me at verse 22. We end it with confidence. How do we do that? Well, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's fantastic. Wonderful privilege. Now, a few years ago, uh, my dad and I took my two oldest boys to a Sydney Swans match. I'm a big Sydney Swans fan. And uh, my dad is a pretty good guy to go to the Sydney Swans matches with because he knows the chairman of the Sydney Swans. And on this particular day, the chairman said, right, 
come on down, we're going to invite you into the rooms with the Swans after the game. Now, uh, the boys are pretty excited, but I was even more excited. But, um, and what the chairman said, he said, come down onto the ground after the game, and when you come to the gate where the players go in, just tell the attendant your name, and he'll just let you in, and you come on down and meet all the players. So, well, we got to the gate, and there were thousands of kids there all trying to get a glimpse of their favourite player and trying to get the attendant to let them in and just being a general nuisance. We walked straight through them and gave the name to our attendant. He said, come on in, we've been waiting for you. Come on down, the swans are wanting to meet you downstairs. So we pushed these kids aside, <laughs> and we just strolled straight on in. We confidently walked straight down, and it was great. We walked in there, and we spoke to Jude Bolton and Adam Goods and even Barry Hall, and uh, we just had the best time. We talked to them for a long time. Well, you know, and tell you the truth, it, actually, uh, it was actually my dad and I who talked to them because my two, my two boys, they had eyes the size of dinner plates, these big Sydney Swans players, and they didn't say a word the whole afternoon. But uh, they couldn't stop talking about it for a week afterwards, so it must have been good. But, you know, great as the opportunity was to march into the Swans dressing room and meet these guys, uh, even I have to admit that um, it's nothing compared to the wonder that's going to be the ability to go straight into heaven. Straight into heaven. If we trust in Jesus, what Hebrews is telling us today, if we trust in Jesus, our names are waiting for us at the gate and we will be swept through and welcomed in. And you can know this tonight. You can be confident. We have the privilege of access to our great and mighty God in his most holy place. And that is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Now, uh, we have a frequent discussion in our Bible study on Thursday evenings, uh, and this is for you guys, the Collies and the Sun sitting over there, <laughs> that perhaps one of the weaknesses of our evangelical Christianity is the apparent lack of joy that we show. And we all know, we all know that we should be joyful in light of what we have, in, in light of our heavenly destiny. We know it's a great and wonderful thing, but we rarely actually talk about it. Rarely do we actually show it. We perhaps focus more on our problem of our rebellion against God rather than the wonderful solution and the promise of heaven and eternity with God. Well, I'm going to say tonight that Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 22 puts joy front and centre. We people who trust in Jesus now have eternal access to the great and holy God, the maker of the entire universe, and we're allowed to stand before him. And not only is that great cause in itself for joy... But what we're going to see in Hebrews 12, verse 22, in a few weeks' time, is that heaven is a place where thousands upon thousands of angels are in joyful assembly. All they can do is sing and praise God because of the wonder of standing before him. We need to be rejoicing in this. We need to be dancing. We need to be praising God. It's such a great thing that joy should be filling our hearts at the thought that we can stand before God in heaven. Why? Because Jesus has done everything for us. He's opened the door, ripped it open, and said, come on in. And that's an incredible, amazing, joyous thing that we should be celebrating tonight. Okay, that's the first difference that Jesus makes. Our relationship with God is now changed, and we need to live joyfully in the knowledge of that. Let's look at the second one. The second difference is about ourselves. Because we are forgiven... The author urges us in verse 23, have a look, verse 23, to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. It's been a common theme of Hebrews, hasn't it? Again and again, the author is urging his readers, and he's urging us here tonight, to stick with Jesus, to hold on to our faith. 
God can be trusted and those who trust in Jesus will be saved. We need to make sure that we don't waver. We don't, you know, swerve from the hope that we're, we've called to profess. We need to make sure we stick to it. We must hold on to this great hope, a hope that it's not just a wishful thought, but it's an anticipation of an absolutely guaranteed, rock-solid, certain future. The difference Jesus makes is when he died on that cross, when he rose again, when he defeated death, was that he proved that he was trustworthy. He could be trusted. And if you ignore this difference, if you waver from that, that hope that we have, then that can have heavenly consequences that are really, really very serious. So don't do it. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Okay, let's look now at the third difference. That is, you know, somewhat surprisingly focused not on us, but on other people. Because I think frequently uh, modern Christianity is perceived to be an individual religion. And what I mean by that is that lots of people think that a decision about whether or not they follow Jesus is between them and God. It's a personal decision or a private decision. They think that it's only about them. And while that's true to some extent, it would be completely wrong to think that Christianity is a solo effort, it's a solo pursuit. Because on the contrary, God tells us throughout the Bible that Christianity is actually a team sport. If you think that your faith in Jesus has implications only for you, then these last two verses are going to show that you're actually wrong. And if you think that being a Christian is all about what's in it for you, you just don't get, you just don't get what Jesus has done for you. Because when we become Christians, we instantly be, are made a part of God's people throughout space, throughout time, throughout history. And this is an important, small, but important part of that here at Chatswood tonight. And the church of God that we become a member of is an immense blessing and an immense privilege. It's God's way of caring for us here on this earth. It's God's means by which people will hear about Jesus and be saved as well. It is God's way of looking after people and supporting us and making sure that we get to heaven. And you see, here is the difference that Jesus makes. He takes a bunch of people, he takes you and me, none of us who deserve anything like what we've been given, and he says, you're going to spend eternity with me, and you're going to spend eternity with each other. Just take a moment, look around, look around the building tonight. Look around the building. Have a look around. These people that you're looking at, Jesus intends that you are going to spend eternity with these people. Not just an hour tonight, not just supper afterwards, not just next Sunday as well, but all time. Scary though that is, Andrew Collier, scary though that is. <laughs> if we're going to spend all eternity together, that just has to change the way we look at each other, doesn't it? It has to change the way we treat each other here at Chatswood. Because the people in this building, the people right here, right now, are special people. They are our eternal family. They're different to the people we work with. They're different to the people we bump into at the shops. They're different to the people we meet at the golf club. And therefore, we have to treat those people differently. We have to treat the people differently who we work with, we go to school with, we meet at the shops, we meet at the golf club. They have to be differently treated. So how do we do that? Well, as a first step, the author urges us in verse 24, if you look at verse 24, he urges us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, as Christians, we know that loving and doing good things doesn't save us. 
It's Jesus who saves us. But we also know that we respond to Jesus' salvation by loving, by loving other people, by doing good things for others. That's how we show our thanks to Jesus for what he's already done. The problem, of course, is that loving people all the time and doing lots and lots of good deeds can be pretty tiring, isn't it? It can be inconvenient. It can be painful. And if we're honest, our best intentions often die well before we act on them. And that's why we need each other. We want each other to grow in love and service. We want each other to be grateful for what Jesus has done. And that's why we need each other to spur each other on, to encourage each other to keep going at working, at loving others. Now, I have to be honest at this stage, I actually enjoy being encouraged this way. And my wife, Emma, she's a great encourager for me. You know, don't get me wrong, uh, my first reaction is not all that positive when she encourages me to do something. But when I, you know, disembark from the SS self-righteous, get down off that soapbox, I appreciate the fact that she cares enough for me to encourage me to go out and do the things that I want to do. And it's just fantastic when I follow through with that and I'm actually able to do those good deeds, when I'm actually able to show my love for other people because my wife has reminded me. So how do you do that here at Chatswood? I'm sure if we spent two minutes together, we'd come up with a hundred ways. Here are six. Here are six that I thought of. First, you can encourage each other. Encourage each other to look after that family or these people in need. Maybe you make a meal for them. They're not going to ask me to do that, so someone else has to do it. You can remind your Bible study members to reach out to that person who's in need of fellowship, who's looking for friendship, who's having a difficult time. You can encourage your brothers and sisters here to keep on at the really difficult conversations they're having with non-Christian friends at school, at work, in their neighbourhood. Keep at it. If you don't want to do something yourself, you can do a deal with someone to go together to visit someone in hospital who needs a visit. Um, You can simply thank a person who you know does lots and lots of stuff behind the scenes here at church. Thank them for serving them. That's a real encouragement for someone. That's a really great way to spur them on to keep doing that. And you can simply pray with your friends. Pray with them that they will be able to do more for others. And let me take this opportunity now. Let me spur you on. Why don't you ask this question at supper tonight when you're talking with someone over a cup of tea or just ask them this question. Friend, how can I encourage you? How can I spur you on to love and good deeds? Let me know. Let me know so I can do it for you. Of course, the trick with spurring one another on is you can't do it unless you're meeting together. And so the author goes on to say in verse 25, verse 25, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You can't spur each other on unless you're together. And it seems that there was a commitment issue in this Christian congregation this letter to the Hebrews was addressed to. And the author's calling them on it. He's calling it for what it is. He tells them that meeting together is important. He says that it's important to be committed to one another. Because being committed to other Christians, a church, a community of believers, is an important responsibility for the Christian person. When we follow Jesus, we become part of the Christian church and we need to be committed to that church. Now don't get me wrong at this stage, I don't want you to hear me say that church attendance is necessary for salvation. You do not get to heaven by going to church. I mean, I remember when I was a youth group leader, back like a thousand years ago, I was often asked by my high school school Bible study blokes whether they needed to go to church to be a Christian. That usually code that night for, can I just skip off and go to my mate's house rather than going to church? And I gave them this answer time and time again. It was incredibly corny, and they got sick and tired of it, but the answer is still the same. Going to church makes you as much a Christian as going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. 
right? Very, very corny, but very, very true, because we are not saved, we don't become a Christian by turning up to Christian meetings every week. Not the way it works. But, but, as Hebrews tells us, not meeting with other Christians is a really, really bad habit to get into. Not only does it make your Christian life harder, but it makes it really hard for you to give to others. Because the problem when Christians are not meeting together is it's very difficult to love and encourage each other, as the author tells us to do again, verse 25. Very difficult to do. Yeah, we can encourage somewhat by phone and by email and by mail, and we do that for our missionaries. And that's a great thing for us to do, encourage those people who've gone out from this church to go and tell people about Jesus. That's a great thing. But for those of us here in this congregation, those who meet together every week, it's really difficult to encourage by phone and email. It might be possible, but... Look, even Twitter might be possible, but I'd severely doubt that. But, you know, to be honest, really true and deep and meaningful relationships only happen face-to-face. And Hebrews 10.25 reveals a really important truth about meeting together as Christians, whether it's here at church, whether it's at Bible study, whether it's sea pigs, whatever it might be that you meet as a Christian group. If I poorly paraphrase John F. Kennedy, it's not about what church does for you, it's about what you do for your church, for the people that you meet with, the Christian brothers and sisters you share fellowship with. Because meeting with Christians, while it's not a necessity, it has to be priority. The author wants us to meet together as much for others' sake as for our own. It's a two-pronged thing. You know, if you think you can sustain your faith on a lone ranger basis, do it by yourself, you're being foolish. You're being foolish because we need other people to help us along in our faith. But you're also being selfish. Just as we need others to help us, so we need to be there to help others. And that's why the author wants us to be in the habit of meeting together. So what does that mean here at Chatswood Prezi? Well, like many other churches, we expect our members to regularly attend church. And we also encourage people to join a Bible study or go to see pigs or do something else where the Bible can be studied more deeply beyond just what we do here every Sunday. But also more personal care and discussion can take place, which is really even more important as this church grows bigger and bigger. That's how it gets done. So how do we do? That's what we try to do here. How are, we good? How are we at it? So let me take a moment just to uh, call it as I see it and call it as we discuss it as elders in session. And what we see at Chatswood Presbyterian is that there are a core group of really committed people who will attend anything and will make sacrifices to do so. And church family for them is a real priority. They'll rearrange things to make sure it happens. And then there are a group of people who I'm going to call convenience Christians. Christians who come to the church when it suits them and who may be a member of a Bible study, but if they attend, they spr- attend sporadically at best. Now, these people have a really long list of reasons as to why they can't fit church or Bible study into their lives at the moment or really why meeting with other people is not a priority for them. Um, it can be work hours, it can be family commitments, it can be sport, you know, I'm really just too busy at the moment or I'm just not getting anything out of church or Bible study, there's something else on. There's a long list of them. And some of those reasons are real. Some of those reasons are justifiable. Some of those reasons are unavoidable. But really, a lot of them are also just excuses for not putting yourselves out to serve other people. Not making these people here, your eternal family, a priority. And I know as I say this that I run the risk of uh, packing everyone's bags and sending you on a guilt trip. Um, However, 
I think that there are a number of people here at Chatswood Prezi, morning and evening, who have gotten into bad habits, who need to be strongly challenged about your commitment to your church family, who need to realise that an hour or two a week with these people is not really making it a priority. And let me say to those people, if you're one, let me say to you, it's great that you come to church. It's really nice to have you here. It's nice to see you. But we want you to be in the habit of being committed to us here at Chatswood, both for your sake and also for ours. So we can encourage you more than just superficially. We can share our lives together at a much deeper level than just passing like ships in the night. We don't want people to skate across the fringe to do minimum commitment stuff here at Chatswood. We don't want Chatswood Presbyterian to be a, simply a ticker box in a very busy lifestyle. We want it to be much, much more, both for your sake, but also for our sake. And maybe this is something um, you need to think about tonight. Maybe this word in Hebrews is something that you need to consider. You need to think about how do you prioritise your life? What sort of things do you put in front of meeting with your eternal family here at Chatswood or at other places where you meet with Christians? Maybe you need to ask yourself, how do you rearrange things to make meeting with your brothers and sisters at church and Bible study and sea pigs a priority in your life? What do you need to talk about with your folks to allow them to come along to sea pigs more often? What sort of things can you do to make sure that it is a priority? I had um, one lady come to me at church this morning and say, uh, you know what, as a result of what I've heard today, I've decided I'm not going to take this job. She really wanted to take this job. And she decided this morning that she wasn't going to because she realised that it actually stopped her from going to Bible study on Wednesday. It goes to Wombat with, the other, with other, other women. And she decided this morning that she wouldn't take that job. And that's exactly the sort of prioritisation I'm talking about. People who make choices to make this family a priority in their life. Because it is such a great, great privilege to be saved into the church of believers. And Jesus wants us to demonstrate that our life and our priorities have changed as a result of that. Okay, so there are the three differences that trusting Jesus will make. Differences in our relationship with God, differences in ourselves, and differences in how we relate to each other. And some of them are joyful, some of them are challenging, and some of them are onerous, aren't they? But I'm going to say they are absolutely vital for us. And why? Well, because as the author points out in verse 25, at the end of verse 25, the very last liver of verse 25, he wants you to take them seriously and all the more, if you read in verse 25, all the more as you see the day approaching. The day that's being referred to there, it's the last day, the day of judgment, the day when God is going to roll up this world, roll up this creation and end it all and bring his people into his kingdom with him. And today, this evening, we are closer to that day than we've ever been before in history. Never before have we been so close to that final judgment day. And that's why the difference that Jesus makes has to change us right now, today. We can't trust in Jesus and live the same. That judgment day is coming. So we need to draw near to God right now. We need to hold unswervingly to our hope right now. And we need to help each other to keep going together as an eternal family right now. Because things are different with Jesus. So let's live differently. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that Jesus has done it all. 
that our great high priest has assured our eternal place in the joyous place that is heaven. Thank you, Father, that we can approach and draw near to you with confidence in prayer today and every day. Almighty God, we want to respond appropriately to what Jesus has done. Thank you for the wisdom contained in this passage today. Help us to live up to the implications that you lay out for us. Help us not to give up on the privilege of drawing close to you. Help us to hold unswervingly to the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, keep us on the straight, narrow path of trusting in you. And Father, we want to ask you to help us to spur each other on to a real and vibrant and active faith that cares for each other. Help us to prioritise the privilege of meeting together and encouraging each other. Father, help us to be individuals. Help us to be a church who lives the life that you want us to live, both today and forevermore. Amen.